Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore episode by episode the story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Our trusty co-host Noel is off on a completely non-sketchy mission, but will be returning. They call me Ben. We're joined with our super producer, Paul Deccant. Give him a hand, folks, friends, and neighbors. But most importantly, give a hand to yourself. You are here. You are you. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Today, Matt, you and I are diving into a crucial event in American history, one that, uh, despite quite possibly changing the course of American politics, is relatively obscure to a lot of people living today, especially younger members of our audience. Yes, you you and I know about this because we've been paid to delve into historical strangeness for quite a time now. And a lot of people listening are going to be familiar with the story we discussed today uh, because of their interest in these things. But overall, the American public is maybe especially younger people are not aware of this. Uh, it's something that happened uh, on July 18th, 1969, uh, one day, essentially, one night, and it changed the course of one man's life uh, quite a bit. And today we have two gentlemen on the show 
who wrote an entire screenplay about that day and the aftermath, uh, why it occurred, what occurred. And um, we're, we're going to jump right in and introduce them right now. That's correct. The screenwriters of Chappaquiddick, Taylor Allen and Andrew Logan. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for, having, for having us. I'm really excited to be here. So let's jump right in. And today we are discussing the Kennedy family, an American institution, uh, a group of people who have captured the fascination of Americans for decades upon decades. And let's first start off by discussing just how powerful the Kennedy institution was in the 1960s. So, uh, yeah, the uh, Kennedy family, um, you know, was um, for sure, you know, one of the most powerful families and. Uh, American politics in the 1960s. Um, John F. Kennedy was obviously president in the early 60s, and Robert F. Kennedy uh, was running for president in 1968 um, when he was tragically assassinated. And our story takes place a year after um, Bobby's assassination, uh, a year later when uh, his younger brother, Ted Kennedy, goes to uh, at, uh, Martha's Vineyard to have a host a party for uh, a group of women called the Boiler Room Girls, who were actually Bobby Kennedy's uh, campaign aides, um, and they were there to sort of, uh, you know, celebrate the memory of uh, the, you know, recently deceased uh, older Kennedy brother. And much has been made over the tone or the atmosphere of this gathering. We know that there were, let's see, were, were there four Boiler Room Girls in attendance at this time? Uh, six Boiler Room Girls, actually. And um, they were all single, and uh, five of the men that were there were all married, which led to a lot of um, scurrilous rumors and headlines about what that might mean because of the mores at the time in the late 1960s. Um, but one thing that is good to get on the record now is that, as Andrew said, the Boiler Room Girls were campaign workers and um, strategists, honestly, and that in the newspapers at the time, they were often mischaracterized as secretaries. And I think that that added to the sort of uh, rumor and misinformation that had taken prominence in the press at the time. Because, honestly, these were very smart, very capable women, and they were very close with the Kennedy family because of how skilled they were and how close they became with the Senator Robert F. Kennedy over the prior year. Do you uh, do you feel that the newspapers and media outlets of the time were pursuing a, a, a salacious angle with the, with the goal of maybe making the – the gathering seemed more lurid uh, than it actually was with this, you know, with this uh, mischaracterization as secretaries versus strategists? Undoubtedly, I think that that was where people's minds went. And I think that it was covered that way in part to push newspapers, but in part just because of um, a problem that, you know, is still a problem today where you try to present both sides of the argument. And at the end of the day, there was no foundation in fact, uh, in discernible truth that anything immoral was happening. It was simply a party. It was simply a reunion. And there was nothing else to it other than that. And there was kind of a history 
uh, at least with John F. Kennedy and a, a little bit with Robert in having um, interactions with women outside of their marriage. So, per, you know, there was something to it, but but as you said, probably wasn't actually anything salacious. Um, so who who specifically, one of the Boiler Room girls, who was Mary Jo Kopechny? Mary Jo Kopechny is uh, the victim in this case. Um, she ends up, you know, dying as a result of uh, actions that Ted Kennedy took and didn't take. And for us, when we were researching her, what we found was, you know, the most brilliant and, you know, a woman of the highest standard. Um, and it was really a life cut way too short. And so that's why in the movie, we really tried to honor her memory by having her express all of her talent to show how everyone around her thought she was so talented and to show how she really did have a lot of dreams and ambitions. And one of the lines that I uh, quite like uh, is when she describes the difference between uh, politics and public service. And uh, in speaking with the family about her, um, she was definitely not in it for the politics. She was in it to serve the public interest. And... I really appreciate the point you make about a life cut short because uh, she was 28 uh, on the night of this incident. And when we, like many others, look back at the timeline, uh, what what we see is that uh, for many years afterwards, questions remained. Could you could you walk us through briefly the the timeline uh, the events and the order in which we believe they transpired uh, after Kennedy and Kopechny left the gathering. Okay, so I'm going to try to walk this through as simply as possible while pointing out um, what is on the record and by whom. Um, they were there in Martha's Vineyard that weekend for uh, the Edgartown Regatta, uh, and Ted Kennedy came at night that day. And after the race, they went back to Chappaquiddick Island, which, important to the story, is a ferry ride off of the mainland. Uh, there's no way to access it other than by ferry. And um, no one was planning on staying at Chappaquiddick that evening. Uh, Ted Kennedy had a room in Edgartown at the Shiretown Inn. Uh, all the Boiler Room girls had a room at a different uh, hotel on the mainland. And the only person I think that was actually going to stay on Chappaquiddick Island was the person who arranged for the party, and that was Ted Kennedy's cousin, Joe Gargan. And he becomes very important to the story as we continue. As we said, the party was simply that, a cookout with friends reminiscing. Music was played, we know. We assumed there was dancing. Ultimately, one of the Boiler Room girls asked us to cut out the dancing, so there's no dancing in the movie anymore. Uh, and what Ted Kennedy has said and what many of the uh, Boiler Room girls said under oath was that Ted Kennedy and Mary Jo left at 11.15. Ted Kennedy has said that Mary Jo said that she wasn't feeling well and that he was taking her back to her hotel. I don't know if we're getting too deep into the weeds here, but I'll tell you that Mary Jo left her purse with her hotel room key 
at the cottage. And so it leads to questions about how she was expecting to get into her room if that was the case. Um, Ted Kennedy says that the accident happened shortly thereafter, after he made a wrong turn off of Main Road onto Dyke Road. Um, this is, again, a very complicated thing to try to describe in audio, but uh, to say that this was a mistaken turn is a little bit stretching credulity because uh, Main Road is a paved road. It is obviously the way that you would go to get to the ferry. Ted Kennedy had been back and forth on the ferry multiple times that day and probably had been many times in his life prior to that. Um, it's also a curved road that curves left. Um, so, so it's not like you would go to a stop sign and then make a right turn. It was a continual just, you know, left-hand curve. So according to Ted Kennedy's testimony, he makes this accidental right turn onto the unpaved and very bumpy Dyke Road and travels for approximately half a mile to Dyke Bridge, which at the time had no guardrails and was, to his point, built at an angle to the road. And he drove off. And the mystery around how he got out of the car is something that continues to fascinate people. Uh, I will actually dismiss this right now and say that his window was rolled down and it's not implausible to assume that he was able to get out of that window with relative ease, uh, especially in a life-preserving you know, moment, obviously. Um, in his testimony, he says that he tried to dive down several times to retrieve Mary Jo and was unsuccessful. Um, and then this is the point where I have to bring in other points of view and other notions about what the truth might be and certainly what me and Andrew believe the truth is. And that's that, um, as we said, Ted Kennedy puts the accident around 11.20, 11.25 p.m. And the reason that he does that is because the last ferry leaves at midnight. And so when I tell you that a sheriff's depu deputy officer, Huck Look, saw an Oldsmobile matching Ted Kennedy's Oldsmobile's description with a license plate beginning with L, the same letter that Ted Kennedy's license plate began with. Remembering it also had two sevens, which Ted Kennedy's license plate had. I think it's very credible that a police officer, an eyewitness, says that that Oldsmobile went through that intersection at 12.45 a.m. Mm, wow. I now describe this as the missing hour. In that missing hour, we don't know what happened, but I'm willing to believe that Ted Kennedy and Mary Jo left at 11.15, as long as we can also believe that they were not seen again until 12.45. Okay, so ultimately, the, the car ends up in the water, it's overturned, and Ted Kennedy does get out of the vehicle, but Mary Jo does not. Um, I, let's just continue with the story because I, I think our listeners want to know exactly how you believe it's happened now that you've done all the research and constructed an entire story around it. Yeah, and I think this is a perfect place to interject that where we got our facts wasn't from uh, conspiracy theory paperback, as some people have suggested. 
um, we actually got the court records into the inquest into the death of Mary Jo Kopechny, where everyone involved, everybody at the party, uh, actually was reconvened in Martha's Vineyard about six months later and had to speak to these events under oath. And for us, that primary source of people that lived through it speaking under oath, that's the most sure research that we could do. And that's why we felt like if we stuck to the facts that we learned from that testimony, that we were doing our best to recreate and interpret what happened that night. And I think that one thing that really stands out for us and hopefully for viewers of the film as well is the fact-driven spine of the narrative. Uh, As you can tell, listeners, as Taylor is walking through the timeline of events here, uh, everyone's being, being very deliberate in saying, uh, this is the attribution of this description. And as, as you have established, Matt, uh, the, the ultimate, the, the ultimate, uh, stickiness or, or, uh, lack of, uh, unified perspective here does come about in the, in the hours following, uh, the, in, in the hours following the incident, uh, I really appreciate, Tiller, the, the term you use there, the missing hour, because this sounds like one period of time where there is no witness between, you know, between this, uh, this period from shortly after 11 to uh, after 12 there. Uh, and it may be too far to ask what the – to ask for – conjecture on what would have happened uh, during that missing hour. But we do know that after the incident, uh, based on Kennedy's accounts, based on the innkeeper's accounts and uh, a a few other um, accounts of phone calls and stuff, we do have a rough timeline of what Kennedy was probably doing in the hours following the accident. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I'll tell you even more, we read his autobiography, as I think anybody would that was trying to tell this story seriously. And he talks a lot about what he was thinking and feeling during these intervening hours as well. And so uh, I'll continue on from where we kind of left off, and it kind of lines up perfectly with the point that I wanted to make, which is um, that Ted Kennedy does escape from the car. And I do believe that he probably tried to rescue Mary Jo, but he was unsuccessful because the current was very strong. His back was bad from a plane crash in 1964. I'm sure that it was probably not easy for him to enter that vehicle. And then we get to the first negligent decision that for me is inexcusable, even if it might be understandable. And I want to make a clear delineation between something that I think that is understandable and forgivable. Um, and I tried to get into the psychology of Ted Kennedy. And the first moment that you hit a real bump is that there's a house called the Dyke House, um, not more than 100 yards from that Dyke Bridge. And um, he walks past it. And it had its light on that evening. And I feel like any person who has gotten into an accident 
one where someone's life is in danger or, you know, worst case scenario, already dead, it is your responsibility to report that accident. Agreed. I, I think that it's fair to say, based off of what Ted Kennedy has said in interviews and elsewhere, that he immediately realized that this accident was going to have great impact on his political career. Now, I am not directly attributing that to the reason why he didn't report the accident immediately to whoever lived in the dyke house, but that was on his mind. And so he makes uh, approximately about a mile and a half walk back from Dyke Bridge to Lawrence Cottage, where the party was taking place. And he passes several houses along the way. And this is a walk that me and Andrew have made ourselves and made recently when we showed the movie uh, in Martha's Vineyard for the Martha's Vineyard Film Festival. It's a 25-minute walk. It's a long walk. There's a lot that could go through one's mind. And in the movie, Ted Kennedy gets into the back seat of the Valiant, the other car that the party had on the island that night. And he asks for his cousin, Joe Gargan. And in the movie, Ted Kennedy tells Joe Gargan, I'm never going to be president. Now, this line has created a lot of uh, consternation in the Kennedy camp and uh, in certain opinion pieces that have run in the New York Times, etc. Uh, it is my invention, it is Andrew's invention that, it, that he said that in that moment. But it is based off of the fact that Ted Kennedy acknowledged that he did recognize immediately that his political career had been impacted by this accident. Also, just in terms of, we talked about negligent behavior in terms of this walk back to the, um, what's referred to as the Lawrence Cottage where the party was being held. Um, that he also, in addition to the Dyke House, which had their light on outside and the occupants of that home were um, there. He also walked right by a fire station, which was almost directly across the street from the Lawrence Cottage, which is another, which would have been another opportunity for him to go seek help uh, to, um, to for for immediate, uh, you know, to get help for Mary Jo immediately. Well, and uh, I will paraphrase Ted Kennedy's speech to the entire nation at the end of the movie by saying. It was only for reasons of budget that this fire station was not included in the film. <laughs> and at this point, we're going to pause the narrative briefly. We will return to the events of Chappaquiddick there in 69 after a word from our sponsor. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real, live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. Oh, my friends love it. I love that it's KidSafe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. 
There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know, taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then you found yourself subscribed? Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had like put a new card on there, it still was uh, tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to like go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying. Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life and you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada, helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. And we have returned. Uh, when we examine the events of this night uh, and as as Taylor and Andrew are already establishing here uh, it's it's inarguable that Kennedy would have would have had to would have anticipated uh political consequences of some sort right even mm -hmm. even immediately after the event one of the big questions that members of our audience are going to have uh, immediately is who did he talk to that night? And if possible, uh, without relying too much on conjecture, what what was the substance of those conversations? Because to the earlier points, he walked past, uh, he bypassed houses that had that that had the lights on, right? A fire station. Mm -hmm. Where wherein one would assume, uh, just on on surface, we would we would assume that. After an accident, especially with another person still left at the scene of the accident, the first move you would take is to contact an authority figure. So who were the people that he contacted before contacting the police or the fire department? 
I'm so excited that you asked this question the way that you did because I get to talk about one of the details that we tried desperately to make into the movie and in any iteration became too expository to explain. Um, that is that the first person that he talked to was a gentleman named Ray LaRosa who was at the party at Lawrence Cottage. I believe that he was a certified diver. Uh, certainly he had a lot of experience uh diving, scuba, in the ocean, etc. And he is the very first person that Ted talks to. And what he tells him is, get Joe Gargan, we've got a problem. And for Andrew and I, this was already kind of a shocking thing for everyone to agree on the record to be exactly what happened. He was not interested in telling Ray LaRosa, a, a friend of his, and someone that could have helped what had happened. He first wanted to talk to somebody that he was very close with and arguably one of the people that Ted was closest with in the world, uh, his cousin Joe Gargan. And I should note here that Joe Gargan was not simply a cousin. I have cousins that I haven't talked to in five years. <laughs> he was kind of... Uh, Ted Kennedy's go-to advanced man who would go in advance of Ted to every location that would go to to prepare everything. And that he actually lived with the Kennedys as his father and mother had died tragically at a young age. And so he and his sister end up living with the Kennedys and they feel so indebted to the Kennedys that actually Anne, his sister, is Joe Kennedy Sr.'s nurse uh, who you see in the film all the way through the rest of his life. So... Um, very close relationship is my point. So Ray LaRosa goes inside and he grabs Joe Gargan. And the next thing out of Ted Kennedy's mouth is, you better get Paul Markham too, who is very close with the Kennedy family and uh, was, you know, not more than six months prior, the U.S. attorney to the state of Massachusetts. And this is a high power, very intelligent group of loyal you know, Kennedy campaign friends. Now, I do want to point out really quick on Paul Markham, uh, he is the absolute worst person at the party to ask for help in any sort of rescue mission because he's the only person at the party who is suffering from a significant injury which he sustained uh, in the boat that they were racing. Uh, actually, in reality, he got that injury boating on the way from wherever it was originally docked to Martha's Vineyard. We put it I in know. during the race. I hope that you don't mind. Uh, we thought that that was an acceptable fudge. Um, but so he is walking with a limp throughout, throughout the weekend because he's injured. And yet this is one of the two people that Ted Kennedy has requested to help. And... According to Gargan's testimony, it was still moments later before Ted actually explained what was going on, and it was on their drive over that he explains that there was an accident, and the car has gone off the bridge, and Mary Jo is inside. And again, strange behavior. Uh, in reality and in the movie, and very few people seem to care about this inexplicable decision, Joe Gargan and Paul Markham stripped down to their underwear to jump into the Pucha Pond to try to rescue her. I don't understand this, and I, I would love to turn it to the host and see if you can help me, you know, 
to this day, I still am flummoxed by why two men trying to save a woman would need to strip down. It seems like the urgency would have you wanting to either A, make a phone call to somebody more capable, or B, just jump right in as someone's life might be at stake. Yeah, it's a question that many people, I believe, are trying to answer. One one argument might be the idea, of course, the, the most immediate argument would be, let's keep this between us. Let's uh, let's resolve this and, you know, let's get the other person in the vehicle out safely. Uh, we can all go home, get warm and then call the insurance folks tomorrow. Right. That would be that would be the most immediate assumption. What do you think, Matt? Well, when you take into account the roles that all three of this men had, um, the the third person that was with them, wasn't he? What, what was his role? Paul Markham. Yeah. U.S. attorney to the state of Massachusetts. So okay, so these these are men who have powerful positions and know the law. So they're, I, I believe, they're most likely saying on multiple occasions, "Ted, you've got to call the cops." Yes. Yeah, so my my thought of them stripping down to their underwear is not maybe a little bit of self preservation in that they could put their clothes back on sans underwear after jumping in and look as though nothing had happened hmm. if they needed to have that option that's my only thinking I mean, with that regards uh so i'll tell you uh making a movie is an evolutionary process and we learned a lot throughout writing the script and coming up with the way to best tell the truth as we knew it and so to this point about what you just said, in the script, you'll see that the line from Joe Gargan as they're stripping down is coming back in wet clothes doesn't give us many options or something to that effect. And in the movie, it comes across in the sound mix very deliberately as a New York Times interview with Donald Trump, and it's just garbled. Uh, but... Uh, ultimately, I feel like that is the right decision for the movie because we do know for a fact that they did strip down, but we really don't know why. Hmm. Yeah, it. you did a great job making it the most plausible version, at least in my mind. Um, so, okay, all of this is going down. There's much more to the story about what exactly happens following the incident, but I kind of want to leave some of that to the to the person who's going to eventually watch the movie. Sure. Um, so I'd like to jump into while while this is occurring, what else is happening in the United States in world news that kind of exists as a cover for uh, this incident? Well, I don't know about cover, well, but it's happening concurrently. It's okay. It's not a cover. It it provides um, the A one position in a newspaper, right? Well, this other thing that's occurring in the news. Uh, another way to put it is that it is thematically the most relevant thing that could possibly be happening at the time. And for me as a writer, it was one of the reasons why this story had to be told cinematically for the first time was that this is the weekend of the moon landing. And so what you have is the greatest resonance of the John F. Kennedy presidential legacy, the greatest achievement of his older brother, and possibly the lowest moment for Ted Kennedy as senator. And considering our premise 
and our understanding of Ted as a human being was that as the youngest Kennedy, he never expected the spotlight to be on him. And in fact, not even John F. Kennedy expected the spotlight to be on him. Everyone assumed that Joe Jr., the eldest, was you know the prodigal son. And then he died tragically in World War II. And then that led to you know everyone hoping for John F. Kennedy to run for president. And obviously he did and became president. And only after two more tragedies with the assassinations of John and Bobby did suddenly all the hopes and dreams of the Kennedy legacy rest on Ted's shoulders. And for us, you know, we looked at it like as a sort of Shakespearean sort of tragedy leading into the events of this weekend. And that's what made it easier to understand how Ted made some of the wrong decisions that he made that weekend. And with this, uh, with this confluence of events, we we see several things happening, right? We we see, as Matt said, the A one story, the uh, and and as you said, Taylor, the uh, one one of the high points of JFK's career uh, occur at the same time as this tragedy. Uh, so perhaps there wasn't as much media attention on it as there otherwise would have been, but uh, investigations uh, did occur. And one of the things that we notice in the film is that uh, when we fast forward a bit, when authorities finally do recover Kopechny's body, uh, one one person believes that she may have been dead or expired before the accident, uh, the argument being that there was not enough water in her lungs for her to have drowned. Uh, was this possibility actually examined, you know, in real in real life by the investigators? Um, so I want to sort of make clear how uh, Mary Jo was positioned in the car. So excuse a long visual description. Um, she was in the back seat of the car, and that has led to a lot of confusion about oh, maybe she wasn't even riding as a passenger, maybe she was asleep in the back, and all that doesn't make any sense. Occam's razor tells us that Ted Kennedy testified under oath that she was his passenger. People all testified that she left. There's reason to believe that to be very true. Um, What's also uh, very interesting about the way that she was positioned is that her arms were, the car's upside down, I should say, um, and her arms are clutched into the floorboards, again, upside down in the car, um, to prop herself up. And her neck is craned in a way where her mouth is fluted upwards. And the only person who saw Mary Jo in the car is a man named John Farrar, who um, was a volunteer for the fire department, I believe and was the diver that, you know, suited up and got into the car to excavate her out of the vehicle. And he said that it, quote, looked like she was gasping for a last breath of air. And this is where we get into something really interesting, which is that I I know that Ted Kennedy assumed that, you know, minutes after the accident that she had to have drowned, that's not an unreasonable conclusion for someone to make. 
But once you start researching this, you find out that even before this accident, there's a woman in New Zealand, I believe, in I, I think you know the mid 1960s, who survived for two hours in a very similar accident in an air pocket. And because someone called, they were able to get this New Zealand woman out of the car and save her life. And that's what John Farrar has said under oath. And when we talked to him personally, he said, I could have gotten her out of that car in 20 minutes if someone had called, but no one called. Wow. Jeez. So with this in mind, with the questions that came into being the night of the incident, the hours and days following, or even the years uh, following, we do have uh, some inevitable consequences that that we've mentioned before. Uh, Let's explore those after a word from our sponsor. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know, taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then 
you found yourself subscribed? Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had like put a new card on there, it still was uh, tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to like go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying. Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life. And you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada, helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. Welcome back, everyone. Let's begin by quickly discussing the political machine that was standing directly behind uh, Ted Kennedy as all of this is going down. He contacts his father and his father, uh, at least according to the film, uh, puts him in touch with a whole host of political advisors and lawyers who then begin constructing the narrative of what happened, what their what the official stance is, what the official story is. Um, and, and let's just go through just a bit of that before we hit uh, kind of the aftermath. Yeah, this is the perfect topic to talk about today. The movie came out in theaters today as we're recording this. And um, the New York Times just published an opinion piece by a gentleman who's uh, writing a new biography about Ted Kennedy who um, inexplicably thinks that uh, this is not something to be included in the public you know, discussion about Ted Kennedy at the moment, as he has, in this writer's opinion, not moved on to the public domain. Again, I can't quite understand that. But his, his biggest issue with the movie uh, is a theme that we had to invent, which is, uh, that when Ted returns to the mainland, uh, to his hotel, uh, he goes to the payphone out front and he calls Hyannisport, where his father, who's a stroke victim and uh, has trouble communicating, lives. And Ted explains to his father in the scene what has occurred, and he is incredibly remorseful and unsure of what to do. And the one word that his father is able to speak is alibi. And this is conjecture on Andrew and Mai's part, but more it is talking to an emotional truth and a thematic truth that we feel is incredibly relevant to Ted. And here's what I'm trying to say. We know that this accident occurred and that Ted didn't report it even after he returned to the Shiretown Inn. And then we also know that, you know, presumably according to Ted Kennedy's testimony, uh, about an hour after he returned to the Shiretown Inn, he went down to talk to a hotel clerk and he asked for the time. He's all dry now. There's nothing visually apparent about him that he's been in an accident. And the hotel clerk said that, Although something seemed off, there was nothing unusual about his appearance. Now, asking for the time is what you do if you're trying to create an alibi for yourself in a situation where a crime might have, been, might have occurred. And I do think that, as we said about the other line, I'll never be president, that he has suggested that 
he did consider the impact that this would have on his political career. We've already discussed the moon landing and the Kennedy legacy and how much that weighs on his shoulders. I don't think that it is at all a step too far to say that his father's opinion of this probably weighed on him and that what he might have concluded is that this would be a huge black mark on the Kennedy legacy. And then we know that he did something that looked a lot like crafting an alibi. And that's how the scene came to be. And I have no shame in admitting that it is an invention. There are phone records that imply that calls were made from that payphone, collect calls, etc. I I don't know. But I, I feel like it is incredibly relevant to his character and the emotions he was going through. And the other thing that people I've seen write about as well, specifically with the alibi line, is that Joe Kennedy, you know, had had a massive stroke and couldn't really speak. And it was actually something that Taylor and I really uh, discussed at length when we were writing the script because obviously we wanted to get it factually correct. And we knew that he had had a stroke and we knew that he, uh, that, that his speech was impaired. And so what we ended up doing is finding a recording of um, President Johnson calling Joseph Kennedy from the Oval Office, and Ted Kennedy was actually in the Oval Office with LBJ as well. And in this recording, uh, you can hear exactly what Joe Kennedy sounds like, which is that he's able to utter actual words and that he's got the heavy breathing on the other end of the line. And, you know, I just think it's important that people know that we did our due diligence and uh, as much research as we could to make this as factual as possible. And I should say this call with President Johnson took place in 1968, so, you know, uh, just over a year before these events. And although Joseph Kennedy's health may have deteriorated from there, even at the time, uh, a line in the movie that Ted says is in this phone call, and that's, you're still the man with all the influence, referring to his father. And that's why it was not surprising to us or too far of a stretch when we read the incredibly influential uh, advisors that were at Hyannisport as soon as Ted arrived, included people like former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, included John F. Kennedy speechwriter Ted Sorensen, congressmen, great lawyers, Burke Marshall, Sergeant Shriver, etc., just you know, men of great historical stature, uh, all were already convened for helping Ted navigate his way out of this crisis. And so Ted in the movie says, you're still the man with all the influence to his father. And I don't think that it's, you know, too far of a stretch to suggest that perhaps old Joe was able to still pull some strings. Agreed, at least on our end, uh, that that almost seems... Uh, that almost seems without question or perhaps uh, naive to assume otherwise. And as we're as we're exploring uh, your collective experience writing this screenplay and bringing this story to the large screen and, and thus, you know, to the public at large, uh, we'd like to ask some questions about your experience and what you found afterwards. And we'd like to begin by asking, what inspired the two of you to go 
so far into this research to pursue this story uh, above other ones? Uh, Because you had mentioned before that there was uh, maybe some controversy about the cinematic look at it, but you conducted interviews, you actually walked the road, uh, you delved into court records. What what was the impetus uh, for you to pursue this despite the obstacles that may have been put up in your path? Um, you know, one word answer, naivety, uh, <laughs> longer, but still quotable answer. Uh, both Andrew and I are lifelong Democrats and incredibly huge fans of the work that Ted Kennedy did as Senator, especially after 1980. And it was actually at one of his most historic moments, uh, when he, endorsed uh, then-Senator Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton in the 2008 primary in what was unexpected and considered by many to be a game-changing moment in that election cycle. And we were, and still are, incredibly huge fans of Barack Obama. Uh, I, you know, really miss that man in the Oval Office. And so when we were watching Real Time with Bill Maher that night, Bill Maher was like, Ted Kennedy changing presidential history again. You know, he would have been president in 1972 had it not been for Chappaquiddick. And Andrew and I had never heard of this before. We didn't even know how to spell it when we went to the Google machine to try to type it in and figure out what Bill was talking about. And for us, because this story was undertold and to a generation you know younger than my parents i think completely obscure that was the reason why we were dying to tell this story and it became clear quickly that this was you know an important story and one that a lot of rumor and conspiracy theories had you know gotten a lot of traction you know, the Wikipedia is littered with conspiracy nuts. Uh, and for us, that was the reason why we wanted to get to the truth as best we could find it. Also, uh, Andrew's dad is a lawyer. And so uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, Andrew was very inspired, uh, much like Ted Kennedy, to honor his father's legacy and uh, stick to the facts as we could find them. So. So what were some of the um, – as, as you said, the, the film Chappaquiddick has only recently been released in theaters. Uh, what were some of the things you ran into that might be considered obstacles in the course of your research? And what have the reactions been like so far as, as the film has been screened or encountered uh, by both – Uh, film uh, critics or analysts, but then also by people who have some sort of personal or professional relationship with the uh, with the individuals in the story. I'm going to say something first that sounds like marketing, but it is the God's honest truth. I have been overwhelmed by the positive reaction from audiences and film critics alike about this movie. Um, I knew that we were, you know, by the time we were making this movie, I finally understood that we were dealing with what was a third rail in political history. And it's like the original source of whataboutism in our modern political history. 
And for me, I expected the reactions to sadly be divided on partisan lines. But in reality, I have been so, you know, eager and excited to read these reviews and see these audience reactions. And everyone feels incredibly passionate about how this story has finally been told. And uh, even the people that are critical of the movie, I think, acknowledge that this did happen and it's something that deserves re-examination. Couldn't agree more. Uh, Watching this film, my reaction to it, specifically to watching that political machine happen, because it's something that I had imagined after just reading about the story, those scenes, I imagined them in my head and you captured them <laughs> almost too well. Uh, the the unnerving feeling that if a powerful person gets in trouble, there is this institution that can come through and basically save you. Um, you know, somewhat by changing details, somewhat just by controlling the situation and just by making the optics uh, correct for what you need. I want to jump to, well, just we'll, we'll say this. There was a press conference, a televised, well, it was more of a televised statement that Ted, Ted Kennedy mm-hmm. gave. No questions. No questions at this time. Yeah. There, you couldn't have anybody there. Uh, there were a lot of stipulations about it. It was just Ted Kennedy speaking to the camera. And that was on July 25th, 1969. And in the film, he is having a just a quick discussion with Joe Gargan. And I'm just going to feed this line and see if you can give me the one that comes right after it. Moses had a temper. Peter betrayed Jesus. I have Chappaquiddick. Moses had a temper, but he didn't leave a girl at the bottom of the Red Sea. Oh, dude. Talk about some screenwriting there guys Mm. i uh that that hit home like perfectly it was just an awesome line and it made it really encapsulated everything that you had seen and experienced up until that moment uh because joe's character played by ed helms really is kind of the the human side to this story at least it feels that way the uh the conscience that exists within the story and i really appreciated that you brought that in in that that moment of, I don't know, the the moment where Ted was trying to reach greatness to be a Kennedy and he had to kind of make a decision there about whether he wanted to move forward as a politician or kind of let it go. And I just, I don't know, I really appreciate what you did there. I, I don't really, I don't know if I have a question about that <laughs> so much. It's not really a question. It's just, I, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, I certainly myself have had moments where, uh, you know, Chris Farley and uh, Paul McCartney come to mind, so I appreciate the question, non-question. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to your point, I do want to say for the listeners out there, if you do see the movie, um, the scene that he's referring to, Joe Gargan ends up doing something immediately afterwards uh, during the reading of the televised statement that I actually won't spoil here, but I do want to say that as unbelievable as it may seem, that is exactly 100% true, and that Joe Gargan did, in fact, suffer the indignity that we show him suffering. Wow. And 
If you want to learn what we're referring to, the best way to do it is to check out the film Chappaquiddick in theaters near you. Yeah, as we're recording this, it's premiering today in theaters. Mm -hmm. And we want to thank you, Taylor, and you, Andrew, so much for uh, coming on the show with us and exploring this all-too-often-neglected chapter in American history. And, and folks, as you're thinking about the episode today, you have to ask yourself, inevitably, how would the course of history have changed uh, had this incident not occurred or had it been uh, processed differently by, uh, by Kennedy, by the media at large? Yeah, you teed it up perfectly by saying, how would history have been different? And what I'll say is that now, after researching for the film, and hopefully for your audience after seeing the film, um, the movie ends with a sort of you know, jaywalking man-on-the-street interview where people are asked what they thought of this televised statement, and more pointedly, would they still vote for him? And with the, you know... Uh, joy of Monday morning quarterbacking and knowing all the great things that he did as senator and that maybe he might have changed presidential election history a second time in 2008 with Barack Obama. For me, one of the driving questions of wanting to tell this story was, was it worth it? Was Ted Kennedy going on to be senator for so many more years, becoming the lion of the Senate and driving through policies that I 100% agree with? Was that the right choice? And for me, the only answer I ever came up with was that the truth has no political party. And that was true in 1969. And that is especially true today in 2018. The midterms are coming up 2020. I would love another reexamination of the truth for executive branch. So that's, that's my point that I had to make. That is a fantastic point and very well said. The truth has no allegiance other than to the facts. And that's our show for today, folks. Our interview with Taylor Allen and Andrew Logan, uh, the screenwriters of Chappaquiddick in theaters near you as we record this and as you listen to it. Uh, we will be back very soon with more stuff they don't want you to know. In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and if you think that social media is a big brouhaha and uh, you'd rather talk to us directly, take a line from uh, Taylor and Andrew's book, go to your primary sources. The good news is you can write to us directly. We are conspiracy at howstuffworks.com. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 
Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. (laughs) 